0: Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On this week's show, I speak with Molly Ball, author of Pelosi, a terrific biography of Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Molly is Time Magazine's national political correspondent and a political analyst for CNN. She's the winner of numerous awards, including the Gerald R. Ford Prize for reporting on the presidency in 2019. She also has won $100,000 on the game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, in 2007. Molly, welcome to That Said.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here.
0: So I always like to begin these interviews by asking about your journey to where you are now. So tell us a little bit about your journey from Yale to Times National Political Correspondent.
1: Well, I did some newspaper internships in college, figured out that uh, journalist was what I wanted to be. Uh, but after I graduated, I wanted to do something a little bit more exotic than uh, working in a suburban bureau of the, of the Washington Post, which is what I've been doing. Uh, so I, I spent a couple of years in Cambodia where I was a reporter for an English language newspaper in Phnom Penh. Uh, and it really changed my life and my perspective to live in a developing country. Uh, then I, 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 got cancer, went through treatment, moved to Las Vegas, uh, because it was the only place I could get a job. And that, uh, was also a, a fascinating experience, great news town. And that's where I started covering politics. Uh, and, uh, spent, I spent about six years in Las Vegas in, uh, 2009. I spent a year in Michigan on the Knight Wallace Journalism Fellowship and then Moved to D.C. uh, without any kind of job or prospects, but hoping that I could uh, get hired somewhere. Eventually got a job at Politico, and then I was at uh, the Atlantic for many years and uh, started this job at Time about uh, three and a half years ago.
0: So the normal course, Yale (laughs) to Cambodia (laughs) to Las Vegas.
1: (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) as you do, right? (laughs) Exactly,
0: just as you mapped it out, right?
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: So... Tell us about why Nancy Pelosi. Why, why did you choose her to write your first book about?
1: Yeah, well, uh, when I started this job at Time in late 2017, uh, one of my first assignments was to write a cover profile of Nancy Pelosi I uh, she had never been on the cover of Time magazine, which is kind of surprising. Right. She became the first woman speaker in American history in 2007. And yet, 10 years later, she'd still never been on the cover. Uh, she would occasionally in other interviews that I've seen, she would drop little bitter comments about it. Well, isn't it curious. You know, Boehner's been on the cover. McConnell's been on the cover. In fact, she wasn't on the cover of any American news magazine, including Time and Newsweek and U.S. News. Uh, and I think she felt a little bit slighted. Uh, but for our purposes, it wasn't so much that we were trying to to write a historical wrong as that, you know, late 2017 going into 2018, she was really in the middle of the political news cycle, right? The, t- the midterms are coming up. It's the first national elections of the Trump era, the first sort of referendum on the governance of this very polarizing, uh, unpopular Republican president. And the Republicans' campaign strategy for the midterms was... Uh, the tried and tested uh, strategy they used many times before, put Nancy Pelosi's face in hundreds of thousands of TV ads and uh, remind Americans that all of their nice local Democratic candidates were effectively a vote for that scary polarizing San Francisco liberal Nancy Pelosi to, to become the speaker of the house again. And she was at the center for the Democrats too. Uh, she's the party's most prodigious fundraiser has been for a very, very long time, but she was also the source of a lot of angst. There were a lot of Democrats who viewed her as a, a liability and worried that all of those Republican ads with her face in them would in fact damage them and maybe even prevent them from winning back the the house majority. Uh, but, you know, as a, as a political writer, the, the politicians you love to, to profile, to write about are the big personalities, right? The, uh, the great political orators and, and storytellers, the, the, the Lindsey Grahams or Stacey Abrams of the world, uh, people who give great interviews and are always, uh, telling you funny stories about their lives. Uh, and Nancy Pelosi is sort of the opposite of that. So, uh, I didn't necessarily, uh, expect to find her all that interesting, uh, at least as a, as a, as a person. Um, but, you know, I was interested in the fact that, you know, at at this time going into the midterms, there were sort of two prevailing narratives about Nancy Pelosi. One, will she be the reason the Democrats lose the midterms because she's viewed as such a political liability? And two, even if they do uh, win back the House of Representatives, which is basically the only thing on the line nationally in these 2018 elections, if they do win can she become speaker again given the divisions within the democratic caucus and the and the dissent and and uh, misgivings among some democrats about her continued leadership uh meanwhile all of this is happening against the backdrop of you know the the the, the operative dynamic uh in american politics starting the day after donald trump was elected was elected was this historic outpouring of women's political activism, a political movement of women like this country has has never seen directed specifically at electoral politics. And so I thought there was an interesting tension and interesting irony in the fact that here you have uh, the most powerful woman in American political history uh, at a time when women are organizing, voting, running for office in an unprecedented manner. And yet the only things anyone can talk about uh, when it comes to Nancy Pelosi is when will she go away? Why is she such an inconvenience uh so that was sort of the 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 animating theme of my piece um, and then, having written that piece, which ran in September twenty eighteen I felt like uh there was more to the story, and uh, the Democrats, of course, did win the midterms, and there was this hilarious sort of one hundred and eighty degree reversal in her public image. Uh, where Democrats sort of the, the, a lot of the same Democrats who had been so disparaging about uh, what she represented turned around and went, oh well, actually, maybe she is good at this job. Maybe she does know how to run the House of Representatives. Maybe she is the person we want. You know, hurting this this unruly caucus of Democrats. Um, and so it seemed like the time was right uh, for someone to to tell her story.
0: And and it's a great story. And it um, for our listening audience comes out in paperback in in early April with an updated afterword. So even if you've read it in hardback, the afterword makes it worth reading again in in paperback. So it it is a great story. You tell a wonderful story. So let's let's start at the beginning in some sense because you've just taken us sort of to the present with Nancy as um, the second time speaker of the house herding a group of cats in some incredibly divisive times. But tell us, if you would, let's go back so we can figure out who is Nancy Pelosi and how did she get to be where she is. So tell us about young Nancy uh, D'Alessandro, the name she was born with.
1: Yeah, well, so the first time I I met Nancy Pelosi uh, one-on-one to interview her for that profile was January 2018. And we decided to meet up in uh, the neighborhood that she's from, Little Italy in Baltimore, uh, where she was born and raised, where where her parents, in fact, grew up within a block of each other, and of the house where she grew up. Uh, her father uh, was a member of Congress that when she was at the time she was born, and later became mayor, uh, served, uh, I believe, three terms as mayor of Baltimore, and uh, was the city's first Italian American mayor. Uh, and uh, and and something I found very striking, though, you know, a lot of people who know. Some, anything about Nancy Pelosi know that, that she went into the family business, that her father was in politics. Uh, but from that very first conversation that I had with her in Baltimore, uh, she really took pains to uh, pay tribute to her mother's contributions, to her upbringing. I think she felt, as a woman and a mother herself, uh, like too much of the story had been about her father. When people talked about her roots, when people talked about her political career, and she wanted to refocus that attention, uh, because her mother, as in so many political families, uh, it's it's really uh, a joint enterprise. The person on the ballot is just the sort of front man for the the whole family effort to 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 run and win elections. Um, and her mother was was very much a sort of strategist, the sort of brains behind the operation, an organizer uh, she also had a lot of the personality characteristics you can see in nancy Pelosi right who's famous for being uh, so tough and and uh, aggressive uh, Her mother definitely had those uh, the, those those qualities she had told off presidents to their to their faces, including both. LBJ and Ronald Reagan. She supposedly once uh, punched a a precinct worker that who who had displeased her. Uh, But but Pelosi in that very first interview also was very frank about the ways in which her mother's horizons had been limited uh, because she was a woman. This was someone who Uh, you know, wanted to, she wanted to go to law school. She wanted to be an auctioneer. She wanted to start a business. She wanted to make investments. She actually patented a beauty product and wanted to sell it nationally. Uh, But in those days you needed a man's signature on the checks and uh, her husband wouldn't give it to her. So she wasn't able to fulfill uh, a lot of these dreams that she had. And I think uh, Nancy Pelosi from an early age was driven by this desire for for self determination, independence, control over her own life, and I think a lot of that came from seeing the ways in which uh, her mother uh, wasn't allowed to pursue all of her dreams.
0: Right, and you write about two stories. You just mentioned them, but flesh it out a little bit. The 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 correction she made to LBJ, and then her refusal to say to see Ronald Reagan, because Big Nancy, as they called her mother, Nunciata, was her Italian. Um, name The Italian name for Nancy um, informs us on Nancy Pelosi's behavior. And I think those two little uh, tidbits are, are, are instructive as we go through and we watch Nancy Pelosi interact with George W. Bush and Donald Trump and even Barack Obama and Bill Clinton
1: yeah definitely. I mean here's someone who uh saw from an early age a very good example of what it's like to to not be cowed by by power and not to be intimidated uh, by men who think they're really important right There' was a time when she was actually in the White House with her husband uh and uh President Johnson called him by the wrong name, called him Tony as the sort of uh slightly derogatory nickname for for an Italian. Uh, and, uh, Nancy Pelosi's mother, Big Nancy, uh, corrected him and said, no, his name is Thomas D'Alessandro. And, uh, and then many, many years later, after, uh, Big Tommy's political career had ended, uh, President Reagan was planning to visit the city, uh, was planning to visit Baltimore and called to see if he would be, uh, a- a- his advanced people or something like that had had called. And, and, and she said, after what this president has done to poor people, he is not welcome in my house or in my city. So she had a a very good example of, of, uh, of a tough, a tough woman, a tough female role model from an early age.
0: Right. But at the same time, and when, when she died uh, Tommy Jr. Uh, said of her that she was really the true politician of the family. And, and we see that and we'll see it as a string throughout the Nancy Pelosi narrative is that her mom kept what you call the favor file. And so talk a little bit about that, because I think that sort of informs Nancy Pelosi's behavior as a very retail politician throughout the course of her career.
1: Yeah the 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 setting she grew up in particularly after her father became mayor when she was 7 years old was very much your sort of stereotypical early 20th century big city white ethnic democratic machine politics right you have the the different sort of ethnic groups all living in their different neighborhoods of the city pretty pretty segregated there's there's sort of a boss system uh, where the, the political bosses command the, the votes of the different groups and they sort of wheel and deal for them. And then there's this system of, of favors, what we might call, uh, constituent services today, uh, where, you know, if someone's hungry, they come by the mayor's house and there's a, a, a pot of soup on the stove. If somebody needs to get into the hospital, get on welfare, get a housing voucher, or anything like that, uh, they could, come to the 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 mayor's house, although he had the opportunity to move away from that little row house in little Italy once he became very important, but he, but he never did. So he felt like this was, this was his, his place. Uh, and so, uh, big Nancy would would keep this favor file where everyone who came by and needed a favor. She would help them. She would take down their information. And then when election time came around, it was time to cash in all those favors and make sure that all those people did their part and turned out to vote. So I think, as you as you alluded to, you can see a reflect a lot of that in Nancy Pelosi's approach to politics, which is sh- which is so uh, sort of transactional and focused on counting votes and uh, uh, knowing knowing who owes what to whom. Uh, I think she got a lot of that from from her father and his political operation and the example that she saw growing up.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because the the label on her <clears throat> pejorative label in some respects is that she's a San Francisco liberal and, and her heart may be liberal in, in that sense. But she really is a block by block, precinct by precinct, every vote counts, retail politician at her at her very core.
1: Yeah, that's certainly how she sees herself. She sees herself as an organizer, and the political advice that she always gives, uh, particularly to new candidates who she's recruiting to to run for the house, is 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 that that's how you do it. That's how you win. You win by by organizing, uh, down to as you said, down to the the block level, down knowing where every vote is going to be coming from. Um, I, one of, one of the, you know, I, I mentioned I wanted to return the spotlight to, to her mother, uh, in, in this narrative in part because she felt like her mother had been overlooked and I think there has been a tendency to give her father a little bit too much credit just because she did go into the family business. She did be, she did, uh, pursue the same career as her father. Uh, but I do think that, uh, I think there's an unconscious tendency uh, when we talk about, uh, the lives of successful women to, to always find, you know, the man they learned everything from, the man responsible for their success. And so there's been this, oh, well, she followed her father into politics as you do. Uh, but from her perspective, you know, she really did put her own stamp on things, unlike her older brother who had the same name as their father and, and went into the same position, became mayor of Baltimore. Uh, she moved all the way across the country before she began her political career. And she ran under a different name, her her husband's name, which was a political family in its own right, which we can talk about. Um, but so I, so I think she definitely learned a lot of that uh, from her her father and mother and the politics that she absorbed growing up. But she also, as you said, she infused that with this sort of more contemporary, more ideological uh, San Francisco liberal type of uh, belief system.
0: Yeah. You write in the book that she had three unwavering allegiances in her life, the Catholic Church, the Democratic Party, and sort of the United States patriotism. And that has informed her and she got that, I guess, from both of her parents. Yes. She was, yeah. she was, she was, as I remember, she has five brothers. Um, she was the youngest. They were to go into the family business and she was going to be a nun. That was, that, that, was, that was, that was, that was the plan, right? Plan
1: yeah. Yeah. That was the plan. Now she made it clear from an early age that she was not interested in that. And in fact, at one point she suggested that she would prefer to be a priest and uh her, her parents or perhaps the nuns at her school had to ha- had to disabuse her of that notion, let her know that actually that wasn't possible, but I think that tells you how you know here was a little girl who grew up uh never being told what she couldn't do and uh, and seeing the example of her five older brothers uh it didn't occur to her that she couldn't be a priest just because she was a girl they had to tell her that
0: yeah she and that sort of is a thread in her life. She doesn't like to be told what she can't do. Um, she has a very independent minded streak. And I think that that is her mother um, personified in, in in many respects.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think it's also certainly the case that she, someone who didn't have that never could have gotten where she is. Right. Someone who, uh, a woman born in 1940 and raised in, you know, the sort of uh, prim and proper world of of Catholic girls school. If she didn't have that personality, if she wasn't sort of fiercely determined to get whatever she felt she deserved, she never could have become the, the first woman speaker. She never could have climbed the ranks of power in the House of Representatives, a place where, you know, when she got there in 1987, she was one of 23 women out of 435 people. Uh, so I think that explains a lot of her success, that, that it just, it's just sort of innate in her to always uh, believe that she's capable of anything she sets her sights on.
0: Yeah, but it, it, as we continue through her life, you, you you just alluded to that she picked up and moved across country. She She marries her husband, Paul Pelosi, right out of college. She has graduated college. She's taken the LSATs to go to law school, but she ends up in in San Francisco and has five children in six years. And so it's sort of like a dream deferred. You write, uh, the the line is a great line. He said, for all her determination not to end up like her mother, dreams thwarted Relegated to the role of invisible caretaker of her husband's public career, she had fallen exactly into the same trap. So talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, well, uh, she initially was a uh, full-time housewife and stay-at-home mom. She, they, they moved first to New York. Uh, her husband was and is uh, in finance, and the first four of their children were born there and then uh but he, he's from like her he's a he's a second generation italian American from a somewhat prominent political family and but he his family's from San francisco and so she she had she had in fact she'd only ever been uh to California once in her life uh, for i believe the uh the democratic convention in nineteen sixty when she agreed to move there uh with paul uh well they you know they had a new baby and and she was she wasn't pregnant with the next one. She would be soon. That's what happens when you have five kids in six years, right? Um, but uh, but she was always she was always politically active through the institution of the Democratic Party, as you mentioned that one of those one of those three institutions that really molded her and was sort of a lodestar. Uh, and so when they were in New York, she would uh, walk. They lived in Midtown, and she would sort of walk down the block with pushing a stroller and putting. Uh, leaflets under people's doors come election time. Uh, And this is the the 60s and 70s, a time when a lot of other politically active young people are, you know, burning draft cards and, uh, you know, turning on and dropping out. And she was never countercultural in that way. She was never that type of activist. She wanted to change the world, make it a better place, but she always uh, was doing it sort of through the establishment. And I think that that's a through line you can see in her career as well.
0: Yeah. and But what you write about, which I'd love you to talk a little bit more about, is how she runs her household and how she sees having raised five children um, so close in age as a sort of great training ground for being the Speaker of the House.
1: Yeah, she talks about it in these terms. So I'm not projecting this onto her, you know, but it's something that resonates with me a lot uh, uh, as as a mom of three myself that, you know, she she talks about the they're basically coalition building skills. Right. And uh, similar to members of Congress, politicians in general, Uh, young children are all very uh, demanding and egotistical. They all think that they're the center of the universe and uh, they want what they want and they want it right now and nobody else's needs really matter. Uh, And, and it's a, a sort of, you know, team of rivals that you've all got to all uh, understand their shared interest in uh, making, making the, the, the ship sail forward. So you know, it's serious mom goals for me, I, I feel like I, I'm basically passing legislation every time I just get everybody to put their shoes on and get in the minivan. Uh, and that's the way she talks about it as well that like the the, the negotiation skills, the coalition building skills uh, that you learn uh, running running a household like that, uh, really end up uh, being directly related to politics. And I think this is something that uh, had that that, uh, I think it's something that's important to point out because she is, uh, you know, a, a, a woman in a unique position because women have not been in these positions before... Uh, or really or really since because we haven't seen that many women in positions of high power. We haven't heard a lot of stories like that, right? You don't hear when a man comes to power about how he stayed home and raised his kids and that was what taught him to, you know, sit down and hash out a bill. Uh, but these are the kinds of unique experiences that that women or at least some women uh, bring into politics.
0: Yeah, I think you write in the book about how she ran the household, that the the beds were made and their rooms were straightened before they came down for breakfast. After school, it was snack, homework, outside to play. Cowbell rang them in for dinner. After dinner, sort of um, everyone was in a line. They'd make their sandwiches for, for lunch. They'd set the table for breakfast and then upstairs to bed. That was It was a tight ship, huh?
1: She ran a very tight ship. There was a friend of hers who who, who once said she knew that Nancy Pelosi was destined for uh, success in politics when she saw these five children all folding their own laundry. So yes, and I, I interviewed uh, some of her children, and they all they all talk about uh, the sort of incredibly uh, regimented uh, upbringing that they had. She was she was very effective,
0: right? And 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 I think the line that you use uh, repeatedly is that Nancy didn't get mad. You wrote, mommy's not mad. She's just disappointed, which that's is, right. you know, wonderful. A
1: familiar sentiment, I think, to uh, to children of of, of uh, strict Catholic mothers everywhere. Uh, and also a very familiar sentiment to uh, members of the Democratic Caucus in the House of Representatives.
0: That's right. That's right. And you see that, you could see that look in her face sometime when someone will sort of speak out of turn or or say something that's not on the you know the, the the program. She gives that look of disappointment, not anger, just like just dis- and you know you know that you know you've made a big mistake. That's exactly right. So let's talk a little bit about her first taste of power. She's out in California, as she was in New York, doing her mother's job essentially behind the scenes unrecognized but important um, political work, fundraising, and other get-out-the-vote-styled things, but she has her first sort of taste of politics around an appointment offered to her for the library board. So tell us a little bit about that, because I think it's sort of instructive about the revelation that that dawned on her when it was offered.
1: Yeah, I love this story. And this is another one that she told me that very first time I interviewed her, uh, and I think the way she interprets this story is also very telling about her perspective and the lessons that she has taken, uh, from her rise in politics. Um, so, you know, it's, it's 1975. They're living in San Francisco. Uh, they live in the sort of posh enclave, uh, Presidio Terrace. And, and one of their neighbors actually is the mayor, a fellow Italian-American Democrat, Joe Alioto. And, uh, he calls her up one day and, 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 uh, and he says, Nancy, what are you doing? Stirring a big pot of pasta? And she's immediately offended. She considers this very chauvinistic. Like, what is this? You think I'm just some, you know, little Italian housewife slaving over a hot stove? In fact, Nancy Pelosi hates to cook. So it's pretty unlikely that she would be, uh, stirring a pot of pasta at any time. Um, uh, but, uh, but she didn't say any of that. She didn't tell, tell the mayor she was offended. She just said, no, Mr. Mayor, I am reading the New York Times. One of her conditions, uh, for, for agreeing to, to move to California was that she could continue to get the New York Times and print every day and read the news and do the crossword. Um, so it would, it would actually be shipped in those days. It was, it was flown across the country on a plane and, and, and the people in, in San Francisco would get it in the late afternoon. Uh, so she would read the, the paper after her kids got out of school and came home and got their snacks. Uh, So the mayor says, you know, uh, Nancy, you've been doing all this volunteer work for the library. I'd like to put you on the library board. And she says, oh, Mr. Mayor, that's not necessary. You know, I've got plenty. I've got enough to do. I I like being a volunteer. I'm happy to contribute in any way I can. I don't need to go to the meetings or whatever. And he reprimanded her quite sternly. He said, now you are doing the work. You should get the recognition. You should have the position that you deserve for it. Uh, He actually had a bit of an ulterior motive here, he he wanted to install a friendly vote on this library commission, which was considering some some sort of uh, initiatives that he was proposing for the city. Uh, But that was uh, that sort of flipped a switch in her mind, as she tells it, because once she took that position on the library board, she wasn't just a volunteer anymore. Uh, She had a vote. And once she had a vote, she had a voice. People had to listen to her. People had to respect her point of view. And, you know, when you are a housewife, even a, a wealthy housewife in the, in the 1970s, nobody necessarily listens to you just because you open your mouth and think you have something to say, right? It was when she had a vote that people had to listen to her, had to appreciate what she had to say, had to respect her. And I think she's carried that forward through her entire life. And you can see it, how she approaches her job and how she approaches power today, that idea of that that hard power is the ultimate currency uh, is something that has stayed with her from those very first days on that. in that first uh, decidedly low profile uh, appointment to office.
0: Yeah. But she also did do good things on the library board. She had meetings outside of the central location. She went out into the communities and she was able to accomplish things because she had that power. That's right. So, She's on the library board. She's still doing all these things. She's got um phil burton uh the iconic liberal congressman as her congressman, who everyone expects is going to be there forever and a day uh unfortunately for for him and the people of San francisco in some sense he he drops dead um unexpectedly. His wife Sala, takes his seat, which you've written about eloquently that traditionally the way women got into congress, all twenty three of them back then was to take over the seat of their husbands um, but so Sala follows the the the, the pattern and takes um, phil's seat but then sadly she contracts a fatal disease and it's on her deathbed that that something happens that's important for nancy Pelosi tell us tell us about it.
1: So this is the famous uh, deathbed scene that, you know, it sounds like a movie. It honestly sounds a little cheesy. I don't think I would believe it if I hadn't uh, spoken to to witnesses who who swear this is exactly what happened. Uh, But yes, at this time, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi's kids have almost all uh, graduated high school, moved out of the house. Uh, her, Her youngest child is a senior in high school and uh so she's she's ready to to look for new horizons she's she's been become very politically active one of the top uh fundraisers for the democratic party nationally she was the first woman chair of the california democratic party she made an unsuccessful run for chair of the dnc was instrumental in bringing the 84 convention to san francisco which incidentally is where that that uh, derogatory phrase san francisco liberal uh first came into use uh so so she's the reason for that uh, but, uh, but she, you know, people often would ask her to run for office, say, oh, you should run for governor, you should run for mayor of San Francisco, so on and so forth. And she always turned them down. She always said, you know, my place is behind the scenes. I'm a strategist. I like, you know, being, being behind the, 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 the being the guy behind the guy, not being the one in front of the cameras. Uh, but her friend, Sala Burton, who she's very close to, uh, calls her to her, her deathbed and says, you know, I'm dying of cancer. Uh, I'm probably not gonna make it uh, to the next election. And, uh, and once I'm gone, I want you to run for the seat. And Nancy Pelosi says, oh, you know, I don't want to do that, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but her friend sort of ex- extracts this dying, this deathbed promise from her. So then she she has to do it. And uh, it ends up being, uh, so, so Salbert ends up uh, dying in early 1987. And uh, you know, San Francisco, big liberal city, there's a very lively uh, amount of, of interest in the seat. And it's, a, and it's a very tough campaign, but that would end up being the last really uh, competitive race that Nancy Pelosi would ever run, and she she won that special election and got to Congress uh, in April of 1987.
0: So it, it was a it was a very interesting campaign. It, it was a great study in using the tools she learned from her from her parents. There were 13 other candidates in in that election, right? And I guess the the most formidable of them was Harvey Britt. Um, who was a, a gay Democratic socialist who had served on the board of supervisors with Harvey Milk, who had been murdered um, in 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 uh, horrible um, tragedy, and and she is running in a seat where the gay vote this dog whistle for San Francisco liberal, which is really what that that was an anti-gay I think um, moniker, um, and she's got to run this again block by block precinct by precinct sort of campaign against against the guy who you know theoretically should have should have won that district
1: yep and 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 uh, so a couple of interesting things about that race uh, first of all she was not the liberal candidate in the race right uh, I think a, a lot of what what you, what you what you learned from this book is that uh, Nancy Pelosi probably isn't as liberal as a lot of people think she was uh, not the she was not the right wing candidate by any means but uh you know she had this uh opponent who was further left than she was who was running ads and uh pass and and putting up billboards saying that she was the candidate of the corporate special interests who wanted a, a pal in, in DC that she was attacked for her wealth she did spend quite a lot uh of her personal uh fortune on the campaign some would argue that that she basically bought the seat uh, and uh, she also sent uh, sent flyers to uh, Republican households promising not to raise their taxes, so positioning herself uh, to the right of the other uh, most prominent Democratic candidate. But, you know, as, as you mentioned, this is this is the 1980s in San Francisco, a uh, hotbed of gay activism. Uh, the, the the AIDS crisis uh, is, is well underway. And uh, and Harry Britt, who's a who's is openly gay and a protege of Harvey Milk, is is, is arguing to the gay community uh, that they should be represented in Congress by one of their own. Uh, so it, so, you know, her strategy in that campaign was to find allies in the gay in the LGBT community um position herself as also being qualified to represent them and then adding on to that w- with other demographics notably the italian american demographic she had uh, what she called a, a non-brigade of her her mother-in-law and other italian uh ladies who called around to all their friends and anybody with an italian surname uh and and she just uh knew where every single vote was that she was going to need and in fact uh a couple of weeks before the election they her um her strategist did a did a poll or a canvas and found that uh, she was she was ahead. Uh, but if they took the most pessimistic estimates of their own turnout and the most optimistic of the other guys, uh, she would fall short by about a thousand votes. So she said, well, we need we're, we're going to need 5000 more votes. And she went out and found 5000 more Pelosi voters and ended up winning, as she said, by only about 3000 votes
0: yeah i think thirty six to thirty two percent and but of course that district was a democrat district, and if you won the primary, you won the seat and then even though she has challengers almost every year since she wins that seat handily so here she arrives in congress she's forty seven years old, which is not uh as her besides the library board her first elective uh first political office that gives her a vote and 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 she's i think you called her not as liberal as you thought, but she has the deep her faith, she's deeply religious, and her faith gives her a deep belief in the humanity of people and she devotes herself to human rights, the rights of, 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 of children, and and she begins to map out a, a place for herself in Congress as as a as a champion of, of those of those causes, right?
1: That's right. You know, there there's a few sort of signature causes that she took up early on. I mean, one thing I think is important to understand is it, as, as a woman and as someone who was primarily known as a sort of fundraiser, which is a kind of a hostessing position, right? In politics, uh, she knew that she was going to struggle to be taken seriously. She's, she's well-dressed, she's attractive. She's coming into con- a, a Congress that is overwhelmingly male uh, where most of the women are, are there because of their husbands. Uh, so she realizes that she's really going to have to impress these men with what she knows so that they don't think that she's just sort of a bimbo. Uh, so she really wanted to be, uh, someone who understood policy and could not be, uh, could not be taken for granted for that reason. So she put her head down. She focused on getting onto, the most serious and substantive committees, and on just knowing the ins and outs of every policy. So it was, you know, it was a decade of being in Congress before she even tried for a leadership position uh, because she was really just focused on on doing the work and getting results and learning the policymaking process. So, you know, it was, uh, it was gay rights, finding different creative ways uh, to get services and funding for the gay community that she represented. I was the Presidio in, in San Francisco, uh, which was, uh, at the time being decommissioned as a military base and which she and her allies, uh, wanted to get, uh, turned into a, a national park. Um, there, there, there's another instance where she's sort of in, in the middle, uh, of, of two different, uh, ideological, uh, strands, right? You have the conservatives saying, let's just sell it off and the liberals selling, no, let's, let's totally, uh, make it, public trust and and use it for affordable housing. And she's sort of in the middle and she ends up turning it into a a public private partnership managed by the Park Service. Uh, And it was the issue of Chinese human rights, which is another passion of hers uh, in the wake of the Tiananmen Square massacre. uh, And uh, another great story that I wish more people knew about Nancy Pelosi is uh, the, the time that she uh, caused an international incident and uh, stood up to the Chinese government uh, in the years after Tiananmen. In uh, 1991, just a couple of years after that incident, she and a couple of other members of Congress, one of whom, fun fact, uh, had previously played a cooter on the Dukes of Hazard. I love that little detail. Uh, so they, they take this uh, state-sponsored uh, congressional delegation trip to China they get shown around by their Chinese handlers for several days, and on the last day, they pretend that they're just too tired to take the trip to the Great Wall. They're just tuckered out and they want to rest in their hotel. Then they sneak out of the hotel uh, and take a cab down to Tiananmen Square and unveil a, uh, a a banner memorializing the victims of the Tiananmen Square massacre. They were uh, it, it was uh, videotaped by American news crews, and then they were chased out of Tiananmen Square by. Uh, Chinese military police, and uh, still went to their dinner that night with the Chinese foreign minister, which must have been about the, the chilliest and most hostile uh, dinner you can imagine. But but that's Nancy Pelosi for you, right? She's not afraid to get in people's faces. She's not afraid uh, to, to speak up for the, the people that, that she uh, feels are, are powerless or voiceless and need someone to advocate to them. And uh, for them, and uh, she's not afraid to to show up afterwards and sort of uh, dare you to criticize her.
0: Yeah, and, and in fact, you you see this in her relationship with Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton comes to power, and he promises essentially to elevate human rights as a hallmark of U.S. China policy. Something that she has been promoting because that was not the policy of Herbert Walker Bush, Clinton. Does not follow through. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Then, we, then we have to move on to her leadership style.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, it, it, Pelosi had been advocating for many years to make America's trade relationship with China contingent on progress on human rights. And, the, and as you as you said, the Bush administration did not go in that direction. But Clinton promised that if elected, he would do it. Uh, he signed an executive order, and then. He retracted it, and she felt betrayed she felt he had personally broken his promise to her, and uh, she was extremely critical of him, a president of her own party, one that one uh you know that she was a pretty good ally of on most policies uh but she was scathingly critical of him and i and I think never quite trusted him again uh because of what she viewed as a betrayal
0: yeah, and in fact, if I remember correctly. Uh, the Chinese premier came to the White House for a state dinner in 1997 and Pelosi was invited. Is that right? And, and
1: she chose to protest outside instead. That's right.
0: Exactly. She sta she, she, um, it, which is, you know, again, it's like, I don't care what you think of me. I have a, a belief system that informs how I'm going to behave and that's how I'm going to behave. And if you don't like me, fine. And if you like me, fine too, but that's not my worry. Yes.
1: Yeah, I think that's right.
0: So Nancy Pelosi is in the house um, for a decade or so. What you say about her is very interesting is that she avoids, and I don't mean this in any pejorative sense because these issues are critically important to all of our lives. She avoids the soft committees, health, education, welfare sort of things. And she goes, into intelligence she goes into the hardest um most sort of male dominated committee in 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 congress and becomes an, an expert it's why she voted against the war that george w bush started because she had seen the intelligence and said you know what i don't believe him that's
1: right she she became uh at the time that the uh at the time that George W. Bush was seeking authorization to go into Iraq, she was the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee, and uh, believed that based on the the case that she'd seen, including some of the classified material that the Intelligence Committee had access to, she did not believe uh, that the case for war was was robust enough, or that or that it was warranted. Uh, and uh, so, uh, at that time, she was not in leadership, and she actually. Uh, she actually whipped her own caucus against their leadership. The, Dick Gephardt was the Democratic leader at the time. He famously, a lot of Democrats, you know, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, a lot of the top Democrats at the time believed that it would be a bad look for the party politically to seem soft on terror uh, by opposing Bush and opposing the war. Uh, Gephardt uh, famously uh, actually stood with Bush in the White House Rose Garden when he announced uh, that he was seeking this authorization. Um Pelosi whipped her caucus against their leaders and was successful uh, getting about 60% of the House Democrats voted against authorizing the war. The majority of House Democrat of Senate Democrats voted for it. Uh, and I think uh, most people, including Gephardt, he told me, uh, believe that, that in the end uh, she was right.
0: Yeah. So Nancy Pelosi sort of jumps the queue, right? There's a lot of people sort of ahead of her in seniority, um, but she wants a leadership position and she runs a campaign essentially and calls in, uh, you know, she opens the, 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 the favor file and, and calls in chits and and, and becomes uh, the, the leader of the Democrat um, caucus. And which is in and of itself an amazing story, but we can't, Spend all the time to talk about <laughs> how she achieved that, but let's just let's just and so there's another reason for people to buy and read the book because there are, we're just touching the tip of the Thank iceberg for of wonderful Thank stories. You
1: for the plug. <laughs> well,
0: it's true there are so I I, I was preparing for this and um, I showed my wife who does all of my. Um, Editing and 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 smart counsel, uh, and I said, "Look at my Ellen." She said, "That's great. Are you going to be interviewing her for four hours?" And <laughs> So we 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 will. I'll try, try to not stay to from. go
1: on that long, although I certainly could
0: talk. <laughs> That's that. right. For so, but what's important? Exactly, exactly. So, but what I think is important for our listening audience, if you will, is to understand Pelosi's leadership style. How is it that she has this unique ability to hold her caucus together when many before her Gebhardt, Paul Ryan, e- e- even um, Newt Gingrich and and Boehner—really um, had trouble keeping those cats herded um, and moving in, you know, or sort of rowing in the same direction, whatever the uh, expression is. But she has a very unique ability to keep them in line. And we've seen it in the COVID Act, this COVID bill that was just passed. We'll talk about the Affordable Care Act in a minute, because it's a great le- life lesson about the perfect being the enemy of the good in 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 her mind. So tell us a little bit about her leadership style.
1: Yeah, well, he, he, as you said, this ability to hold together the the and, and, and enforce party discipline is really sort of her superpower. It's uh, she, you know, the political scientists who studied this and compiled the statistics will tell you she has uh, enjoyed greater uh, party unity among her caucus than any, I think, speaker before her. Uh, and some would say that that's a bad thing, that, that by enforcing this this party uh, discipline, she's contributed to some of the intense partisanship and polarization uh, that, that afflicts the Congress. Uh, But she's done it in the name of getting things done, getting results, making things work, not worsening or deepening that gridlock, but 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 the opposite. Uh, But you know, she she comes into leadership in the days when you know uh, the the Gingrich Revolution sweeps through in '94 and puts Democrats in the minority, and so they're they're trying to get back into into the majority at, at at that time, and and so she believes that. By, by holding together on all of these votes, this gives them leverage either to get the priorities that they want in legislation or uh, to force the Republicans uh, to put their money where their mouth is to get the things that they want. Uh, but, you know, uh, it is it is pretty amazing just some the to, when you think about how complex a place the House is. Right. 435 members, 220 odd Democrats. Um, And, you know, I don't I can't even remember all their names, but of course, Nancy Pelosi not only knows everybody's name and where they're from and the name of their spouse and their kids and what the political makeup is of their district and what issues they're passionate about and who they're currently mad at or feuding with and what committees they're on, what committees they want to be on, what committees they don't want to be on, uh, the, you know, policies that they're interested in and so on and so forth. So, so that goes a long way. Just that encyclopedic knowledge of the house and its workings, and the, the ability. She sometimes compares herself to to a weaver with a loom in the way that she's able to take these many, many different strands and and harmonize them together until they make uh, a beautiful picture. You know, I was giving a book talk the other day, and I uh, and 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 one of the questions was, well, so. In order to get people to do what to do what she wants, she must just reason with them. Correct? She just makes the strongest argument. She knows the case inside and out, and, and she uh, you know makes such a convincing case that that people just have to follow her. Uh, and I realized that I had not uh, done a very good job getting my point across because it's really the opposite of that. She really, uh, more than anything, listens to people, makes them feel heard. She knows the power. Of making people feel like they have said their case, said their piece, made their best argument, even if in the end they don't get what they want. Uh, so a lot of what she does is, you know, in the, in the, among the House Democrats, they're known as therapy sessions or prayer sessions even where she'll just hold these marathon, uh, caucus meetings where everybody gets up to speak. And if you know any, uh, members of the House, you know, they love to hear themselves talk and there'll be hours and hours of just venting and saying what they have to say. And she listens to all of it. She hears them out. She, she wears them out. She outlasts them in some cases, as you mentioned with the affordable care act, is a great example of this. And it's the personal touches too. You know, she, she's always the, the the first call that you get when there's been a death in the family uh, or, or or a divorce or something has happened. Uh, She seems to always, uh, you know, she, she's always sending people flowers, always remembering occasions and, uh, showing up to, to, to funerals. She once, uh, in the middle of a, of a, of a big legislative battle, surprised one of, uh, her political allies by, by showing up at their father's funeral all the way across the country. So it's personal touches like that. It's the relationships that she has with every single member of the caucus. Uh, that's really the key because she, she has, you know, I write in the book a lot about these different, Strategies that she uses in negotiations. Uh, we can talk about some of those if you want. And, you know, I, I, I think I started out thinking of it as a sort of bag of tricks that she has these different tactics that she pulls out. But what I came to understand is that more than any one particular tactic, it's this understanding, uh, this deep and, and sort of instinctive understanding of human nature, understanding how, how motivation works, understanding what makes people tick. And that's the key to toddlers, and that's the key uh, to a legislative caucus as well. It's just knowing what buttons to push that will get somebody uh, to, to come your way.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, she is a fierce competitor. You write in the book that she says, I get up, I put on my suit of armor, I go into battle, I take a pen, I take a punch, I throw a punch. So she she has this kind heart, this humanity to her. But she also is nobody's, you know, punching bag, if she will, or if she is, she's going to punch back just as hard.
1: That's right. Her toughness is legendary. And, you know, we haven't really gotten to the Trump era yet, but it was it was always very interesting uh, to hear Trump talk about her, because you could tell, even when he was extremely uh, upset with her, that he had this sort of grudging respect for her toughness, right? This is a, a president that, if you know anything about Donald Trump, you know he respects Strength. He respects. Uh, he respects toughness, and and he always saw her as someone uh, who. He, and, and many Republicans, in fact, have said this to me that they wish they had someone as tough as Nancy Pelosi because uh, she is she's as you say she's she's able to to take a punch and throw a punch, and she's someone who, uh, when she believes that she has the upper hand, has the leverage in a situation, she doesn't back down.
0: Yeah so uh, I was going to wait a little bit to get to Donald Trump but l- let's let's go at it. There there are two things I'd <laughs> like you to talk about in respect of Nancy Pelosi's relationship with Donald Trump. One is a photograph in your book um which shows uh Nancy Pelosi at a at a, at a table um at a national security briefing and I'll let you tell us about the picture. And the other one is the two, is the December 11th 2000 18 meeting at the White House between um, Pelosi. Well, Schumer was there too, but really it's between um, Pelosi and Trump around the government shutdown. So, if you, can you tell us because they are perfect examples of everything that she represents as a as a as a leader.
1: Yeah, and they evolved. They also became sort of sort of iconic as memes, right? Which I think is is uh, sort of perfectly illustrates the way her her public image turned around, particularly on the left, that she sort of became this heroine of the resistance. And there there are these incredibly striking uh, photos of her that that are, have become famous, along with you know tearing up the State of the Union speech and so on. Uh, so so I'll start with the first one, uh, December 2018, the Democrats have just won the midterms, but she's still trying to round up the votes. She needs 218 votes uh, from the Democratic caucus uh, to actually become speaker again in January. Um, so she's running this very difficult campaign to convince a lot of the, the, the holdouts in her own ranks to support her, and meanwhile, uh, the, the government, uh, is about to potentially shut down because of this, uh, stalemate between the, the Democrats and, and Trump over he wants his border wall funded and the Democrats don't want to fund it. And so for this meeting in the White House, uh, Trump had actually only invited Schumer, uh, but Schumer invited Pelosi along because he suspected that, that Trump was trying to run a sort of divide and conquer strategy. So they go and they think they're going to have a, a normal negotiation. Of course, nothing is normal with Donald Trump. Uh, and in this case, uh, something that he's, he's done on a few occasions, he invites the cameras to stay in the room. So instead, so now instead of having a private conversation, they're basically putting on a show uh, that's being streamed live and shown live on television. Uh, so they have this meeting. They start talking about what just happened in the elections, and and uh, Trump at some point uh, says, "Well, you know, it's not easy for Nancy to talk right now. I know she's got this situation in her own caucus." And she, and this is when Nancy Pelosi interrupts him, stops him, puts her hand out, uh, and says, "Mr. President, please don't tell me." Uh, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting uh, as leader of the House Democrats who just won a big victory. Uh, and then she and Schumer at the end of that, and then Trump, you know, takes ownership of a potential shutdown, says, I'm happy to, to take responsibility if the government shuts down. They sort of can't believe their luck. That's an incredible political gift uh, in the shutdown that that in fact is about to, to unfold. So, so Pelosi and Schumer walk out of the, the White House uh, very satisfied, and she's got this sort of a self-satisfied smile on her face and she's wearing this red coat and she puts on the, the round sunglasses. And, and that's the image that, you know, quickly is all over Twitter. But I think just as significant to the, the power of that image, the resonance of that image, uh, it was what she had said in that meeting was that that line, which also was made into t-shirts and memes and so on, please don't characterize the strength that I bring because, you know, if you think about 2018, two years into the Trump era, so many liberals were so starving for some someone to stand up to Trump, and so seeing someone, the the person who the you know the liberals had just gotten into that position by winning the midterms, seeing someone, particularly a woman, stand up to Trump to his face. And tell him, you don't get to tell me where I stand. I will tell you where I stand. That was very, very powerful to, to a lot of people. I think particularly to, to women who have been in too many meetings with men who, you know, tried to tell them where they stood. And uh, so that combined with the image of her in the coat uh, and the sunglasses. And then, and that is the image on the, on the cover of my book sort of cemented her into this iconic status, I think. Uh, and then the second uh, photo you talked about where uh, you know, she's wearing this the blue pantsuit, and she's in. She's surrounded by men, and this it's a meeting about uh, what's happening in Syria, and um, and she's the only one standing. Everyone else is sort of sitting and averting their eyes. And Trump is across the table from her, and she's pointing at him. Uh, she's a pointer. She once said in a in another interview, uh, not with me, uh, that that uh, she knows some people think that it's rude to point, but she sort of can't help herself. She just does it. And so uh that, so that image was another one that resonated really widely, but the only reason it even exists is because, you know, she, she stood up, she told Trump off, she and Steny Hoyer walked out of the meeting after Trump insulted them, and, uh, and then Trump want, wanted to spin it as, well, she threw a hissy fit, she threw a tantrum. Uh, so he so this was a this was an internal it was a White House photographer's image. And then it only became public because Trump posted it on Twitter. And it was so, it was so telling that after, you know, Trump posted this, ma- thinking it made him look good, thinking it made her look, you know, unhinged. But what so many people got from that image and Pelosi actually made it into her uh, Twitter banner, what so many people saw in that image was here's a bunch of men who are afraid to stand up to Trump. And here's one woman in the room standing up face to face with him, putting her finger in his face and telling him exactly what she thinks. And and what she later claimed that she was saying in that moment uh, was all roads with you lead to Putin. And that was uh, what made Trump so angry. Uh, But, uh, but so, so there again, you have, I think the, the resonance of her being the only woman in the room uh, and, and what it meant. To, to so many people uh, in that audience, particularly liberal women, to to see that kind of representation.
0: And, and in fact, having a woman in the room is is in fact very important to her. She she had said, I think you reported maybe that had Hillary Clinton won in two thousand and sixteen, she might have considered retiring, but because um, Trump won, and because if she were to have retired there would be no woman in the room. She felt a a responsibility to to stay on because of the importance of having a woman in the, in in the room. Right.
1: That's right. I mean, it's, it's really amazing to think about. Uh, There's a moment, it actually comes a little bit earlier, I believe 2005 where, you know, she had, she's not speaker yet, but she is the leader of the democratic minority. And so In that capacity, she's invited to uh, the White House of George W. Bush, along with the other uh, the leaders of the Democratic and Republican caucuses of the House and Senate. They all go to the White House to have a negotiation. And she looks around and she realizes not only is she the only woman in that room, right, the only woman leading a party uh, in, in Congress coming to negotiate with the president, She's the only woman who's ever been in that room, 200 plus years of presidents negotiating with Congress and calling the congressional leaders into the White House. And she is the only woman who has ever been a part of that process. And it's a very powerful feeling. And she describes it as you know, almost feeling like uh, the hundreds of years of, of, of women's history are, are, are on her shoulders, the you know, suffragists looking down on her or whatever else. Uh, so she so that's something that that means a lot to her and she did say uh to me and i think she's told others that that she did she would have considered uh stepping down uh had hillary clinton been elected now who knows if that's really true uh it's easy easy to say that now of course right uh, but it does it is important to her that there be uh a woman in the room when those deals are being made
0: yeah and in fact we'll get another one of these did she mean what she said Moment in 2022 because in 2018, when negotiating to remain or become again the speaker, she said she only planned to do this job for essentially two more terms, four more four more years. That comes up in 2022, so we'll see whether she's whether she meant that or or not.
1: We'll see whether she sticks to it. You know, this is this is a very touchy subject with her, and nobody really uh, wants to bring it up around her. Uh, because she will probably snap at you, but uh, she, uh, but she did, she did make that pledge that she would serve, she, that she would not serve as speaker past 2022. It was a sort of condition of uh, the votes that she needed to become speaker again in 2019. Uh, and she was asked, uh, I believe, back in November, or December, after this this last election, if she planned to abide by that, and and uh, she sort of very tersely said that that was still her plan. So. Uh, as far as we know, we, this is uh, her last term as speaker, but she hasn't said anything more about that, and it's not something that uh, that she enjoys talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine, because uh, she's so effective in her job. And I have a theory that one of the reasons that she is so effective in her job is that unlike speakers before her, Paul Ryan, most notably, and, 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 and Gebhardt to Gebhardt, She has no plans to do anything other than be Speaker of the House. Those guys we knew, as they actually did, run to be President, Vice President of the United States. And so there was always a sense in the caucus, I had a sense, that in the caucus, one thought that we don't know whether Dick Gephardt or or Paul Ryan or anybody else is acting in the best interest of the caucus or in their own individual best interest, but with Pelosi, it was, it was always just the house.
1: That's right. Early in her political career, she was sometimes mentioned as, you know, uh, on the, maybe not the short list, but the long list of potential uh, vice presidential candidates, for example, or, or people wondered if she would want to, you know, run for governor or Senator or so forth. Uh, She really never had any interest in anything other than the house. And, uh, you know most leaders say that right i'm focused on my job here at home you know usually it's a it's a mayor or a or or a governor will say that about 5 minutes before they end up running for senate right um but uh but 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 people really believe it when she says it and i think she really does feel and i think it's true that her talents are are really naturally suited to the house of representatives the 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 complexity of it the, the shifting and overlapping blocks and caucuses and her ability to manage all of that it's a really unique environment uh one that very few people you know over the course of history have really mastered and that is really her skill set and where she wants to stay
0: yeah and she's a she's a ter- besides the herding of the cats keeping her caucus in in line she has a wonderful negotiations style she has you know you you've called them the fake concession or the name your price strategies. And I, I did an interview with Peter Baker and Susan Glasser about former Secretary of State James A. Baker. And there are so many parallels between Pelosi's style of of getting things that she wants through this negotiation and and Baker's. And uh, I want to talk about impeachments in a minute and we're almost done. But I think it's a wonderful story to tell about this name your price strategy in respect of the AIDS quilt on, on, on the National Mall, because it's it's just lovely.
1: Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I love It, it is, as you say, it's a great sort of case study in negotiating uh, tactics. Um, but yeah, so this is uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. Part of her efforts on behalf of the LGBT community uh, she wants to to bring the AIDS quilt, which at that time is something—it's a new thing—it's something no one's ever really heard of, and and the AIDS uh, crisis is still uh, still somewhat taboo as a as a subject for for public discourse. Uh, and uh, so the the activists in her district have this this gigantic you know football field size quilt. They want to bring it to Washington and put it on display. So she you know talks to the Park Service, says, "Can we want to put it on the National Mall? Can we do that?" and they start and they say oh well you know we have no problem with it theoretically but you know there's all these reasons that we can't do it she says well tell me what the reasons are and it's, well it would kill the grass well how could we stop it from killing the grass oh well i don't think there's anything i mean you would have to pick it up like every 20 minutes or something just to let the grass air out and just okay well that's what we'll do and so she has that that ability to sort of call someone's bluff because once someone has has named their price once someone says well I'll do it if you can fulfill this outlandish seeming uh, uh, criteria. And she finds a way to do it. So they actually, uh, the, the, the activists all stood around the edges of the quilt and every 20 minutes they picked it up and let the grass air out. And then they put it back down again. And uh, once, once they committed to doing that, it was, she, you know, she suspected that that wasn't the real reason the Park Service didn't, uh, wasn't letting them put the quilt there. Uh, but once they said that that was the reason she was able to 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 call their bluff, they'd name their price and she gave it to them.
0: Yeah, it's terrific. It's a wonderful story. So the hallmark of Nancy Pelosi is the number 218. That is what you need to pass a bill through the House of Representatives, 218 votes. And 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 her career is marked by achieving 218. She does not do things that aren't practical, that don't have real consequences to them. And to that, and the second to last thing I want to ask you about is, tell me about impeachments. Because each of those impeachments, it seemed, um, certainly the first one and probably also the second one, were going to be fruitless endeavors as a matter of the removal of the president from office. She resisted impeachment of George W. Bush over the war. Her caucus had a subsize- sizable number of people who wanted her to initiate impeachment against W. And she said, "It's it's fruitless. It's not going anywhere. I don't engage in fruitless endeavors. Let's let's just keep moving forward." But here, twice, she she agrees. Uh, she micromanages the processes a bit, but but she agrees. So. What was the thinking there, Molly? What, what, why?
1: Yeah, her history with impeachment is really interesting. You know, she had, besides George W. Bush, she had lived through the the Nixon impeachment as as a as a young adult or uh, and uh, or, or perspective impeachment, I guess. Uh, the the Clinton impeachment, uh, something that she believed she she called it a joke. Uh, she did not think it was warranted. And then in the case of George W. Bush. Uh, she believed it was fruitless, but also she didn't think it was warranted constitutionally. She disagreed with Bush on a lot of policy issues. She thought the war was was wrong and a bad idea, but she didn't think it was a violation of the Constitution uh, that rose to the level of an impeachable offense. And so, you know, there was a there was a large contingent on the left that wanted her to impeach him. And then they, she had, you know, Code Pink protesters camped out on her lawn for weeks. Uh, Cindy Sheehan, the anti war activist, actually moved to San Francisco just to run against her in the Democratic primary, uh, to no avail. Uh, So so she was wary of impeachment, I think, because of those experiences, not wanting it to to, to be just another sort of partisan tactic. And if you remember, you know, 2018, 2019, the time right after Democrats had uh, taken control of the House, There was a huge amount of controversy over this impeachment question. A lot of liberal members of the House raring to go, believing that even before the the Mueller investigation had concluded uh, that it was clear that that Trump had committed impeachable offenses and that it was time to start that process. And she held them off. And it was, you know, it was a combination of uh, her political instincts, believing that in part because of the Clinton impeachment, uh, that this was something that could backfire for the party politically, be viewed as a sort of partisan overreach, uh, as it was for the Republicans in the nineties, uh, and, and wanting to protect the, the, you know, the frontline members, the, the House members from, uh, purple or, or, or pinkish districts that, that had gotten her the speakership. And also just feeling like there was going to be no tangible result. This is, uh, no matter how much you might deserve it, this is not something that is going to, you know, uh put uh, put a paycheck in anybody's mailbox or or a uh, food on the table of a, of a hungry child or anything like that. Uh, but when the Ukraine scandal broke uh, the the her caucus moved very quickly to uh, to unity around impeachment. She'd held them off for basically nine months up to that point uh, as the pressure was building and building to start impeachment over the Mueller report. Uh, but it was when the Ukraine scandal broke. That number one, her caucus moved in that direction, including some of those moderates and and, and sort of national security hawks in her ranks. Uh, and but number two, she did feel that it was warranted on the merits at that point, that the that the evidence of a of a constitutional violation, an impeachable offense. Uh, was just too blatantly obvious. It was, that, it was necessary. But she did micromanage the process and, and, and a lot of her micromanagement was to make it as, uh, as, as short and concise and focused a process as possible, in part because she did not want it to be seen as a distraction or something that was, you know, taking up a huge amount of, of the Democrats' bandwidth. She was very intent on sending a message to the American people. That the Democrats are primarily interested in uh, their policy agenda, in, in in helping people and passing laws on you know healthcare and the economy, not on these this this partisan impeachment process. So uh, obviously she would go on to impeach Trump the second time. Uh, for uh for the January 6th insurrection. And and in both both cases, these were historically bipartisan impeachments. As much as I think we'd like to think of impeachment as the kind of thing that, you know, all oh of course both parties can agree that when a president violates the Constitution, he must be stopped. Uh, but in our history they impeachments have been partisan. Uh, and so the fact that there was a vote, uh a one Republican vote uh against Trump uh the first time around and uh, Mitt Romney in the Senate, and the second time around, uh, 10 Republican votes in the House and seven in the Senate, I, I think uh, it is a high watermark as much as, as, much as the desired result uh, was not achieved.
0: And I don't know if you've had a chance to speak to her since the, the book has has come out, but does, does she, I know she doesn't do regret. She doesn't do vulnerability. She doesn't show emotion. She's not an emotive, person. Um, Boehner famously cried at the drop of a hand, and she is much more steely. But was it worth the price in her mind? Does she have regrets looking back? Or is the principle so overarchingly important that it was the principle that matters, irrespective of the outcome?
1: I don't think there's a reason to, to regret it, given that there it's not clear there was a price to it. Right. Now, had Democrats you know, lost the 2020 election. They did lose seats in the House, although I don't think anybody really believes that, that that impeachment had much to do with that. It was so far in the rear view by the time the 2020 election uh, rolled around. Uh, but, you know, had the Democrats lost the presidency and or the House in uh, in 2020, I think you, you would have heard a lot more about, well, you know, did they go too far with uh, that first impeachment?
0: So, last question. You write in... The afterward of the paperback, I think, um, which is coming out on April sixth, and everyone should go buy okay. it. Um, and if you're here <laughs> in Washington D.C., go buy it at Politics and Prose. Um, you write, if this book has a thesis, it is that you needn't agree with Nancy Pelosi's politics to respect her accomplishments and to her mo- and to admire her historic career. So. In conclusion, Molly, what do you think Nancy's legacy should be?
1: Yeah, Um, uh, a few things. So I've asked her this question. I know what her answer is. Her answer is the Affordable Care Act. I actually asked her this during impeachment, said, you know, do you think that impeachment will be uh, your legacy? And she sort of cringed and said, you know, well, I hope that my legacy uh is the affordable care act that's what i'm most proud of and then all the other you know sort of landmark pieces of of legislation that she's uh, been a part of and, and led through the congress uh that's what she would like to see as her her legacy and 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 it shouldn't be uh, overlooked. This is, you know, Democrats have been trying for a hundred years to pass some form of, uh, universal access to healthcare. And it was Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama and, and Harry Reid in the Senate who finally did get it done as, as flawed as, as many see, uh, that particular piece of legislation as being in the end. Uh, but I think in addition to that, I would add, and I, I think, so I think that certainly is a part of her legacy. And I think that, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot about the Affordable Care Act in particular uh, in this book that uh, I think uh, her role in passing that has prob- has been underappreciated. Uh, but in addition to that, you know, there's, there's her effectiveness. Uh, and if I'm not a, a historian or a political scientist, but if you ask the historians or the political scientists, they will tell you. Uh, she really is one of the most effective legislative leaders in history. She's up there with, you know, an LBJ or a Sam Rayburn in her ability to work the levers of government uh, and, and and use the institution of Congress uh, to get things done, to get legislation passed. And I think that's all the more impressive given the age that we're in, right? We hear all the time that that the government is dysfunctional and broken and gridlocked and, And that for all kinds of, you know, structural reasons that aren't anybody's fault, it's just impossible to get anything done. It's too too polarized, too too partisan, too politicized, or maybe New Gingrich broke it or whatever. Uh, But I think Nancy Pelosi proves that that's not the case, that that this is a skill. Governing is a skill. Running the House is a really, really, really hard thing to do. Uh, But if you have the the talent, the skill to master it, you still can make uh, this Congress work. And she is proof of that. Uh, And then lastly, I would say her her status as the first woman speaker. Uh, And I do hope that it's uh, something people will will pick up the book and appreciate since we didn't have time to talk about it. But, you know, she really faced a lot of uh, she came in at a time when there were so few women in Congress. Uh, She faced a lot of uh, opposition from the the male dominated Democratic establishment when she did decide uh, to go for that leadership position. She 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 fought every step of the way. So one of the things that she's frequently criticized for now is that she hasn't sort of groomed a successor, and what she says is the reason for that is that she had to fight to get where she is. She had to round up the votes herself, so whoever wants to take her place needs to prove that they have what it takes by by doing the same thing, fighting the same fight, getting the votes on their own strength, and that's what she did so you know i, I it, it it it's easy to forget. Uh, just how much uh, antagonism and difficulty she faced uh, as a woman, being being the first woman to to achieve all those all these things. So, so that I think is Nancy Pelosi's place in history.
0: Yeah, and we'll we'll see whether or not, in the uh, tradition of of Sam Rayburn and uh, Cannon and others, they name a House Office building after her. Which, like the delay in the putting of her on Time magazine's cover. <laughs> I hope there's not a delay in naming an office building after her.
1: It may, it may well happen. We will see.
0: We will see. So Molly Ball, thank you so much. It's a, it's a great read, Pelosi. And uh, you've been just so generous with your time. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a great conversation. Happy to do it.
0: That said is produced by Compro in the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts thoughts by writing to us at ThatSaidZeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.